All right. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles up, gang, to Acts chapter 1. I've been very excited about getting to this. And, of course, uh, I hope that you guys have been reading ahead. Before I touch on it, I just thought it was interesting. I had an interesting discussion uh, just prior to service. And I just want to share it not only with you guys, but with our listeners. You know, when you look at the religions of the world and you compare Christianity to them, it doesn't, none of them, they, none of them compare. Why is that? And this is why it's relevant to our study tonight. Every major religion, and, and religion is something I've been studying for nine to 40 years. But no religion on the face of the earth today, none, not one, is based upon any testable fact. What do I mean by that? All the works that have been written have either come through some private dream, and I mean where some man had a dream and then he goes about convincing other people that the dream was from God, and that he wrote that down and then he convinces people that you know, they, they should believe this and, and embrace it. Or he had some private experience where he was engaging with an angel or whatever the case may be. And then he goes about convincing other people you know, that this was a real experience and then they, they had the choice to embrace that or not. Not so with Christianity. From the very inception, when Jesus approached, he came into the world in a very public way. He came into the world in a very public way. Even his ministry, the whole time he was on the face of the earth, while he was ministering, he did it publicly. He healed the sick publicly. He raised the dead publicly. There was nothing that he did that he did in secret. Matter of fact, the great historian Flavius Josephus, if you've never read his works, I encourage you. Even Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish Roman, he was a historian, but he wrote in the, in the court of Ptolemy II, and he wrote about Jesus, short, but he wrote about him. This is a short blurb. He says, about this time there came a man called Jesus of Nazareth, a mighty man who did many wonderful works. This man was the Christ. Wow. He did it publicly. When he was crucified, he was crucified publicly. And when he rose from the dead, and we're going to talk about that tonight, he did it publicly. By many infallible proofs we're going to read. So it's not compared, Christianity cannot be compared to any religion of the world. Why? Because they can't be tested. You can't put the test, the dream of some man. How do I test that? But I can test a witness. I can test a witness. And so it's testable. We have something that is tangible in front of us tonight. The Word of God that is absolutely accurate to the manuscript that it was taken from. It's testable. I'm excited about the book of Acts because as we've went through the book of Romans, and we've been so blessed to get so much feedback, especially from those of you who listen on radio, and I thank you for contacting the radio station on which you hear this and telling them that you appreciate this broadcast. Bless your heart for that. It takes a lot of effort for people to just pick up a phone anymore, let alone write a letter. 
We love hearing from you. We want to hear that the Word of God is blessing you. We want to hear that you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Savior Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to continue to do that. We've studied through the book of Romans. We went through the book of Hebrews. And we've looked at what the gospel is. And the superiority and all that Jesus Christ came to do on our behalf. And how that benefits you and me. And by this time, I think you guys, you've got it down. I think most of you have. If you've come through those studies with it, you've got it down. You understand the gospel. You're right where probably 95% of all Christendom is today. We're going to take it a step further. Because now we're going into the book of Acts. And now, you know, we, we are believers and we're filled with the Spirit. But now we're going to step into this realm. We're going to see how the early church, and not just the early church, because when we read the book of Acts, this is going to be the mindset of some people, whether you're sitting here or listening by radio, because we've always done it. We say, well, that was then, Doug. That was then. Au contraire, mon frère. No, nothing has stopped. Nothing has ceased. The Spirit of God, who is the third person of the Trinity, is just as alive and active today as He was from eternity. And He is seeking to work and to be active in your life in a very personal way to bring you to that place of power that you might be a genuine, authentic, and powerful witness of Jesus Christ. That's why this book is so important. You know, a lot of times we look at it as just being the template for the church, which I believe that it is. I think that it's a good model for the church. But it's so much more than that. There's so many stories that as we get into it, I mean, right from the very beginning, it's powerful. The author of this book, of course, is, is Luke. Luke was a physician. He was also the companion of Paul, and we're going to see that. Luke also wrote the gospel, the gospel of Luke. Matter of fact, in early Christendom, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts were actually combined together into one volume. And they were often read that way in many, many churches before it was broken down into the way that we see the Canaan distributed through the scriptures today. But he was the author of both. And he starts off the gospel and the book of Acts basically the same way. He starts it off with a, a, an entreaty. He entreats O Theophilus. And there's been those who have speculated, many Bible teachers believe, that Theophilus was probably the master of Luke. Why, why did they believe that? Well, because many physicians, which we know Luke was, he was a doctor. But back then, it wasn't the prestigious appointed position of scholarship that we see today. Uh, these were men who generally, most of the time, were slaves. And they were usually owned by somebody. And so there are those that have speculated that Theophilus is probably the master of Luke. And so he writes this treatise, both the former and the book of Acts, to Theophilus. But there's really no proof of that. Because he would have had to have given him leave in order to go on the mission trips and everything that he, we wind up seeing him do. So there's really no proof of that. I think it's more plausible and more understandable if we just take the word Theophilus for what it means. And in the Greek, the word Theophilus means lover of God. And so Luke writes, O Theophilus, O lover of God, you know, when he preached the gospel and then when he begins to write 
the book of Acts, he addresses it the same way, to those who love God. So, you know, I, I just, I, I think that that probably suits better than thinking that it was something else. You also remember that Paul, the apostle, when he was in Troas, he had this vision. Remember, and it says that Paul had this vision and, and, and the, he saw a man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. There are those that believe that the man who was saying, come to Macedonia and help us, is none other than the great physician Luke. I, I tend to agree with that. I think it's true because by the time we see Paul coming to Macedonia, as we get to that section, you'll see that the first guy he meets there is Luke. And Luke goes from that point using, you know, he, before then he, he uses them and, and, and those type of words. But then he goes after that point in Macedonia. Once he becomes a companion of Paul, you'll see him move to using pronouns of we and us. And so Luke becomes an eyewitness to the things that we're going to be reading about. Not just writing about it in the third person. He, he was there. He saw it. He witnessed it. I've had many people tell me over the last 35, 37 years, however long I've been teaching, why don't we see the things that we see in the book of Acts done? Because when I hear you preach, you keep saying, nothing's changed. The Holy Spirit is still around. He's still doing today what he's always done. Then why don't we see people raised from the dead? Why don't we see more people sick, healed? Why don't we see the things that we are going to see in the book of Acts? Well, I think the easy answer is, is unbelief. Now listen, a lot of people, we all believe in the Trinity. We understand the Trinity. We sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Sing it with me. Praise all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Come on. Amen. I love that part. <laughs> we sing about Him, gang, but we know nothing about Him. Most people look at the Holy Spirit as an it or a thing, as a power. But he's a person. He's the third part of the Trinity. And he has a very specific purpose in our lives. And we have a very special relationship with him. As Luke begins the book of Acts, it's very interesting to me that he starts it off with really the last thing that he ended the gospel with. It's actually a really cool way of doing it. I mean, it's just, Luke was a physician. He was very technical in his writings. Very, you know, very articulate in his writings. I love it. But he, he, he starts Acts the same way that he ended the book of, of Luke, the gospel. So we come to verse 1. And he says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, O lover of God, of all that Jesus began, if you're taking notes tonight or you're listening by radio, mark that word, underline it, began, both to do and to teach. 
The key word in this verse, gang, is began. He began to do. You see, the gospel, according to Luke, is not the full story of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's just not. Luke states it here. We're going to see, as we get into this book, that Jesus continues to minister to the needs of people. He will continue to heal the sick. He will continue to raise the dead to this present day, gang. This is happening. I don't say it's happening in every church, but it is happening in places in the world. There are those Christians who have determined to be filled with the Spirit of God and to operate in the Spirit of God. And I'm telling you, the dead is still raised. The sick are still healed. And there is power to be had in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is continuing his work in the world today through us, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's still going on. But the gospel wasn't the whole story. So Luke felt compelled to continue it, to write it, and to show us that the work is continuing. So the book, even the book of Acts, really isn't done being written yet. Why? Because it's not actually the acts of the apostles, as we've said. It really is the acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And that's never ended. So it's not really a finished book. Now, it's important to know, I think, that God has ordained his work to be accomplished through human instruments. He just has. I don't quite grasp it because I, personally, if I were God, I wouldn't do it. If I were God, I'd be dead right now because I wouldn't have tolerated me for a split second. But I'm not. And God has chosen men to do his work. I don't say that it has to be. When you come to the book of Revelation, as we get to that great book, and I can't wait to get there because I love teaching through it. But when we get to the book of Revelation, you're actually going to see God using an angel to fly through the heavens preaching the everlasting gospel in the last days. So God doesn't have to use us, but he has ordained through his great wisdom and his sovereign choice to do so. He uses men like you and me as flawed and as imperfect as we are. But you know what, man? You ought to jump for joy at that. We all ought to be excited that God uses imperfect vessels to perform his perfect work. Why? That's great hope for you and me. Because there ain't any of us flawless now, are we? We're perfect in Christ, but we're not flawless in the world. We can always point out our own flaws. Most of us know it, but even if we can't point them out, somebody else will. <laughs> but God loves us and God has chosen and ordained to use us in spite of us and I'm so thankful for that so often you know we can think of reasons why God would not want to use us you think of I've had people come to me and and tell me, Doug, I, I, I want to be, be used. You know? I, I want to do what you do. And I'm going, I don't even know what it is that I do, but whatever I do, if it's, if, it's of, if it's of any worth, it's only because of Jesus Christ, man. 
If it's of any worth, if I've ever opened my mouth and said anything that was fit to be repeated, it's because of the Holy Spirit. Believe me, it's not me. I have nothing to offer. I bring nothing to the table. I'm a flawed individual just like you are. But yet, I said, Lord, here I am. Send me. Instead of saying, why, I, I say, why not? Why not? You know, I figure if, if God, you know, remember Balaam, the story of Balaam? God used a dumbass to forbid the madness of the prophet. If he could use one of those, he could use me. You know, it's the truth. If God could use a dumb animal, he can use you. And he loves you. And he, he just wants to exalt himself through your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's chosen to do it that way. But so often, you know, we make excuses why we don't. Well, God will never use me because I can't speak. Remember Moses up on the mountain. Lord, I have stammering lips. And so Moses was a man who stuttered. And so he, he tried to lay every excuse out why he couldn't. Jeremiah said, Lord, I'm but a kid. No one's going to listen to me. I'm just a kid. We can all point to why the Lord shouldn't use us or why he wouldn't want to use us, but the Lord says no. I'm looking for someone who will stand in the gap. I'm looking for anybody who will say, here am I, Lord, use me. But simply wanting to do something for God, you've got to make this clear. Simply desiring to do something for the Lord is not enough, gang. You can desire to be a preacher and a teacher of the word, but if it's not empowered by the Holy Spirit, it will fall on deaf ears. It will be fruitless. I don't care what it is. You might have a desire to feed the poor, but if you are not being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it, all you're going to do is feed the poor. Do you understand what the difference is? We're, we're to not only do that, but we want to bring people to Christ. We want to see people's lives enriched by the Spirit of God. We want to see people turned around. We want to hear those testimonies, the story of His glory in their life. That's what we want. But that has to be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We all have our imperfections. And we can all come up with reasons why the Lord wouldn't want to use us. But He has ordained it to be so. And so he uses us, embrace it, and just accept it. And just say, Lord, here am I, send me. Look at verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, underline that, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, this is what Luke ended his gospel with, uh, which was the day that Jesus was taken up uh, from the apostles. But if, when you go back and read that, and I encourage you to go back and read the end of Luke, he tells them, he says, but stay here. Don't go anywhere. Stay here until you are endued with power from on high. Verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, that is his crucifixion, by many infallible proofs being seen of them for 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom. Here's the thing I love about Jesus. The fact is, is even after his resurrection, you know, some people have it in their mind, and maybe if you're listening, either sitting here or listening by radio, maybe you think the same thing. Maybe you think Jesus just kind of popped in, you know, after he rose from the dead, you know, just to kind of show himself 
to the 10 or to the 11 at the time and say, hey, guys, you know, I'm actually alive and go tell everybody. That's not what he did. Jesus showed himself for 40 days. 40 days. That's a long time. He showed himself after his passion by many infallible proofs. It is extremely difficult to deny the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, there's those in Christendom and even some pastors. I remember a Barnes study at the time. This would have been back in the early 2000s that I read that even among evangelicals, uh, and I'm talking even within like Bible, you know, believing denominations like Baptists, that like 60% of the pastors no longer believed in the resurrection. <laughs> what? Oh, it's not unheard of, gang. You know, the most time, most of the time we put people behind pulpits, but we never ask them what they believe before we put them there. So they wind up there, and we just don't bother asking, but the whole time they don't even believe half of the doctrines that are taught in the Scriptures. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Barna study proves it. But it's hard to deny the, the actual fact of the resurrection if you simply put it to the test. We have in our system, in our, so, so, in our social system in this country, what we call a jurisprudence system based upon witnesses. That's how our jurisprudence system is. You know, if, if Paul was to rob a bank, and uh, not that he hadn't thought about it. Uh, if Paul would, <laughs> if, I'm joking. I'm, <laughs> if Paul was to rob a bank and three of us was to see him do it, and we witnessed him do it. We saw who did it. And, we witnessed it. And, and he winds up getting arrested. And he goes to court. And all three of us lay witness against him and say, well, we love the guy because he's part of our Bible study. But yeah, you know, he wasn't trusting in the Lord. And he decided to take matters into his own hands. So we saw him do it and he robbed a bank. Now, I'm sure his attorney would say, well, I want to cross-examine Doug. And he would get up and he would do his best to try to trip my testimony up to say, well, you sure? Did you have your reading glasses on, Doug? You sure it was Paul? Maybe there was something wrong. Well, you got a vendetta against Paul? How come you picked him out of the Bible study? You sure it was him? I think you're just picking on him. So the cross-examination would come at me pretty hard if he had a decent, well, I won't say public defender. He probably could afford something more than that. But you get the point. That's our, juris, that's our jurisprudence system. It's based upon witnesses. Now, if your three witnesses hold up to their testimony, if they hold up to it, and they can stand the test of cross-examination, well, then Paul's going to jail. Because under that jurisprudence, under that, and the witness of three people, sometimes only one, but if they hold up under cross-examination, they would be considered guilty and they would be judged. That's what would happen. When you take into consideration Jesus Christ and his resurrection, one of the most interesting things to me is that Jesus' Jesus's resurrection is one of the most documented facts in history. Most people don't know it. Most people have never heard it. Why? Because most people don't read the Word, man. 
They don't get into it. They don't read the whole thing. But after Jesus' resurrection, he showed himself not only to the 11 apostles, but up to 500 people at one time who were meeting in one place. He did this over a space of 40 days, meeting in different places and in different circumstances and teaching them about the kingdom of God. The whole time he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. But for 40 days. Now I want you to realize as we just talked about the issue of witnesses. Now think about this for a moment. You've got 10 men by this time. Because one of them, John the Apostle, he doesn't die for his faith. Because he winds up going to the island of Patmos as a prisoner. They tried to kill him. We know according to church history that actually the Romans tried to boil him in oil. But whether, you know, the fact is it just didn't work. So they wound up just exiling him to the island of Patmos. When he got out of there, he was almost 100 years old. He goes back to pastor the church at uh, Antioch. And he was there till he died. Old man. But the other 10, the other 10, these, all these men had testified that they saw Jesus Christ not only raised from the dead, but that they walked with him. They sat with him. They ate with him. They listened to his teaching for 40 days. Now the Romans had a little problem with this. Why? Because even the historian or philosopher Cicero, who wrote about the issue of crucifixion 200 years before Jesus, said that crucifixion was one of the most heinous ways that mankind had ever sought to put another person to death. He said it was the most, it was just excruciating. It was gruesome. It was heinous. But the Romans prided themselves on it because when they put you to death, you stay dead. <laughs> they didn't like the fact that there was now this great controversy that was being risen by his believers and people of his followers who were saying that this man actually did not stay dead. That even the worst act of scourging and crucifixion could not hold him down. And that he rose and that they were witnesses to it. Now there are those, even today, maybe some listening by radio, who believe, and I've heard them say, and I've read books on it, that it was a hoax, you see. It was really not, I mean, come on. Nobody raises from the dead. Not when you've been scourged the way the Romans did it, read up on it. Not when they nailed you to a cross, not when they jammed a spear into your side and, and pierced your heart. Yeah, you don't raise from the dead after something like that. So obviously, it was his disciples that came, took the body, and stole it away and started this rumor. This is what most unbelievers try to make other people believe. The internet's full of it. Well, here's a little problem with that, gang. If we apply the principle of our jurisprudence system to that, of eyewitnesses, what if we were to take the ten and we put them on court? Which actually happened. Happened one at a time, but it happened. All ten of them. Took this, they were being judged. They were arrested by the Roman Empire and they were put to the test. 
And of course, the Romans had one way about it. They said, look, here's what we're going to tell you. Tell the truth or we're going to peel your skin off of your flesh or we're going to wrap ropes around your legs. We're going to have the horses drag you up and down the steps or we're going to quarter you or we're going to crucify you, or we're going to impale you, but your death is going to be slow, and it's going to be heinous, and you're not going to like it. Now tell us the truth, or you're going to die. Now I've got to be honest with you. If you take that kind of testimony, and you put it in our court system today, where people, when they are sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I wonder how many of them would recant the truth that they're speaking if the penalty of a lie was death. But that's what these men faced. Now, given the odds of probability, I know people, you know people, we know how people are. I know that there's people who will believe a lie. There's whole cults full of them, gang. Millions of people who believe lies. But there's not many people who will die for a lie. Not many. I'll get, let's, let's be reasonable. Let's say, let's say out of 10, if it were a hoax, if they had stolen the body, if it was just something that men had made up, wouldn't, it would be reasonable to think that maybe one of them I mean, come on. Out of 10 men, some of them were put to death in the most gruesome of ways. It would be reasonable to think at least one of them would say, okay, hold it. Put the knives away. Oh, look, we needed a little extra money. You know, guys, it was just, you know, we, we just decided. Sorry. We just decided we're going to start our own religion. Yeah, you know, it's really no big deal. Put the knives away. Yeah, it's, it's all a joke. We didn't mean it. At least one of them should say that. If you really want to drag it out, you could say maybe two of them. But not one. Not one. One by one. Every one of them. Now get this again. I want you to understand this. Those disciples weren't put to death because they were disciples. They didn't say, were well, you a follower of Jesus? Yes, and then they killed them. That's, that's not what happened. They didn't care. The Roman Empire really didn't care about Christianity at the time. It was a mundane, minute, little Jewish sect that they really didn't think much about. Matter of fact, some have even conjectured that Luke wrote the book of Acts to show the Roman Empire that Christianity was actually beneficial to them. Maybe true. I don't know. But the Romans weren't concerned about that. What they were concerned about was that this one Jesus, whom these men said that they followed, they said that he rose from the dead after they had crucified him, after they had made sure that he was dead. And that infuriated them. And so they wanted to get the story right because they didn't believe it for a moment. Even though... The witnesses said that he was there for 40 days, ate with them, drank with them, talked with them, taught them, was there in different places, seen of 500 people at one time. 
But every one of them, gang, every one of them, went to their death saying, we saw, we held him with our hands, we beheld the Lord of glory. Every one of them. Now i got to challenge you. Whether you're sitting here or whether you're listening by radio, listen, what is your belief based upon? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single doctrine in the Word of God that either makes you a Christian or makes you hopeless in the world. For it was Paul the Apostle that will go on to write when we get to that. If we but in this life have hope, brethren, we are all men most miserable. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are still in your sin. There is no hope for you. But ten men witnessed to the fact that he did rise from the dead. And their witness was so strong that they went to their death for it. They laid their life down for it. And we know this not just from the scriptures. We know this from Roman and secular history. I got told one time by an old man when I was a young man that there's no secular history about Jesus. Well, then you ain't read. Let me tell you, brother, when you start digging into it, there's all kinds of it. But the proof the many infallible proofs were those men who laid their life down for the truth. And the truth was that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That is the central doctrine of the gospel. Without it, there is no Christianity. It shocks me when I hear that there are pastors who no longer adhere to it. Because then what are you preaching? Paul the Apostle says, if we in this, but, if, but in this life have hope, we are all men most miserable. Man, if we don't have hope of eternal life, what are we preaching? But it's true. It's absolutely true. And so he was there for 40 days. And what was he teaching about? He was talking about the kingdom of God. You know, and so often... The disciples seem to be preoccupied with the question and the timing about the kingdom of God. They're always asking the Lord, well, why is that? Well, when you go back and study the Gospels, and we're going to get there, you're going to see that Jesus brought it up all the time. Jesus loved to talk about the restoration of Israel. And not only of Israel, but the overthrowing and the establishment of the kingdom of God upon this earth. When all the nations, the corruptness of the world will be overthrown. When Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem will be there. And the, and the King of kings, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, will reign from that city. When all things on this earth will be made right. They, he put that seed, that hope in their heart. And they desired it, man. These guys were living in a time when the Romans were persecuting the Jews so much. And they wanted to see the deliverance of Israel. They desperately wanted. Oh, man, what a glorious day that's going to be when the Lord finally establishes his kingdom on this earth. You remember the, the, the two men who were coming uh, down the road of Emmaus. And the Lord himself actually shows it. He starts walking with them. Of course, they don't know it's him. And he begins to talk with them. He says, well, how come you guys are so sad? 
And they said, oh, you must be a stranger if you haven't heard what's went on in Jerusalem. What things? Oh, there was one man, Jesus of Nazareth, and the anointing of God was on his life, and he did so many. We had hoped in him that the deliverance of Israel had come. But they crucified him. And our hope is gone. Man, it wasn't until they got to the house and they sat down to break bread with him that Jesus finally revealed himself to him after his passion, alive and well. He was there. Their hope was restored. But even the disciples, because the Lord talked about the power that was going to come, as he's going to say here in just a few minutes, it was reasonable for the, for, for the disciples to, to ask about the restoration. They, they were concerned with the kingdom of God. So often today, gang, we're not, and we should be. Even the Lord told his disciples, pray after this manner. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That ought to be our heart and our mindset. Man, I don't know about you, but I want to see the kingdom of God established. You know, every time we go through these election cycles, man, every, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, one guy or one gal is going to fix it. No, listen, there's only one hope for this country, for the world. And that's a theocracy, not democracy. Theocracy. And that's only going to happen when Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne in the New Jerusalem. That's the only time it's going to happen. Until then, it's a flawed system. <laughs> it's flawed. Do your part, but know it's flawed. It's, nobody's going to fix it. There, nobody's going to do everything right. It's not going to happen. Jesus spoke to them a lot about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he saith, you have heard of me. What promise? The Lord tells his disciples to wait. Don't go anywhere. Stay right here until you have received the promise of the Father. I have no doubt that he's speaking of Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. You can write that down. I'll read it for you. Here's what it says. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out of my spirit. The promise of the Father was that the day was going to come when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all the believers. Each one of them would receive a dynamic or the dynamic from God. You see, prior to this, back in the Old Testament, up to the, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was given sparingly. It was given to those prophets and to some seers, but it was given sparingly. But after the new covenant, once Jesus Christ came and established everything for us and did everything for us, then God was going to move us into this next realm, this realm of the Spirit, this new relationship, and he would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh and upon all believers. Look at verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now the word baptism here, is a transliteration. Always has been. Always will be. Why? Because there's no English word called baptism. 
There is now, but it's a transliteration. What's that mean, Doug? It means they took the Greek word baptismo and they simply transliterated every letter because they didn't have a word for it. So they transliterated it. They just made an English letter underneath of the Greek letter and they came up with the word baptism. What does it mean? In the Greek, it means to immerse, fully immerse. This is what it means. He says, John verily immersed you, submerged you in water. Ah, but you, <laughs> you shall be baptized, fully immersed in the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. So now he's beginning to speak about something new to them, a new thing, something better. When they were therefore, verse 6, come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time again uh, restore the kingdom. Here they go, back to the kingdom thing again. Well, the disciples wanted to know. I think it's legitimate that they asked. I, I think the fact is, is because they had this hope in him, and now Jesus is telling them, well, I'm going to endue you with power. They, they assumed, and you know, they rightly so, acquainted power with restoration. Well, if he's going to give us power, that means we're going to put an army together and we're going to overthrow. And then God's like, we're going to, yeah, this is it. Well, this is it. And Jesus just goes, no, that's not what I'm talking about. No, it wasn't the time. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed in his own power. The Lord wasn't talking about the restoration of the world at that moment. He was talking about empowering these guys for service. Empowering them for service. It's not for you to know the times that the Father has appointed and put in his own power. Look at verse 8. But you shall receive power. If you're taking notes, underline the word power. You shall. Not maybe. Not probably. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, underline the word upon, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a threefold relationship we get with the Holy Ghost. Threefold. It's threefold. The baptism of the Holy Spirit like we talked about, it's not very under, well understood today, regardless of the denomination that you're sitting in. And I think really that when you boil it down, I mean, you, we can say, well, it's unbelief, and I think that that's some of it. I think, but, but I really believe that the reason for it is just the lack of systematic study through the Word of God. Most people just don't, they just don't do it. Because when you systematically go through the Scriptures, it is so clear. It just stands out. You see it so clearly. But the Bible's very clear. There's this threefold relationship. I'm going to read this for you. You don't have to turn here, but look at, write down John 14, 17. And this is back in the gospel. And of course, Jesus speaking, talking to his disciples, he said, even the spirit of truth, he talked about them receiving the spirit. He goes, even the spirit of truth of whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Ah, well, there's an eye opener. 
That's it. We're going to see. He should be with me. And he's going to be with me. Okay, that's the one and two. So there's two aspects there. What was he talking about? Well, the Holy Spirit, he says, was in the world to convict the world of what? Of sin and of righteousness. Before you knew the Lord. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, as we get into the Greek, you know, the paraclete, he comes alongside and he begins to woo us to Christ, to convict us. Every time you heard a sermon before then, if it was preached from the Word of God anyway, the Holy Spirit will use that and, and he begins to woo you and to say, you know what, you really need the Lord. You really need to make this confession of your faith. You need this. And so as we step from that, then we, we put our faith in Christ and that conversion the Bible's very clear that the Holy Spirit comes into us. Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will send him to you. I and the Father will come and we will make our abode in you, in the person of the Holy Ghost. And so he's with us and he shall be in you. So every believer, when we come to Christ, is filled with the Spirit. And there's many in Christendom today, gang, who say, well, that's it. That's all there is. There's, you're filled. Okay, well then you're good to go. Well, you're good to go to heaven. I agree with that. You're absolutely good to go to heaven. What do you need to get to heaven? You've got to believe. And if you're a believer, you're filled with the Spirit. Sealed, the Bible says, unto the day of redemption. You're good to go. What you might not be good to go with is empowered to be a witness. How often I've had people come to me and go, man, I, I, I've never led anybody to the Lord. I know pastors, gang. Pastors who have never led anyone to Jesus Christ. I've talked with them. The first thing I asked them was, when were you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Oh, well, you know, when I, when I, when I, when I believed. Oh, really? Well, it could happen. I can show you examples of that. But most of the time, that's not what happens. Because if you're not leading people to Christ, if you've not been a witness for him, there's probably a reason for that. And the cure is so simple. So simple. And that's what the Lord's talking to them about. This twofold relationship at this moment, he's going, he shall be with you. He shall be in you. So when, you know, before he was wooing us to Christ, once we came to Christ, we were filled with the Spirit. Good to go as far as salvation is concerned. But there's another one. And this is in John chapter 7. And this was after, of course, Jesus, you know, had talked to them about these things. And in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, I'm going to read it for you. It says, in the last day, that great day of the, of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. Now, this is really a cool picture. And, uh, but the Jews at this time, there was a place out there that was the porch uh, at, the, at the temple. And they would bring these water pots. This is during the feast. And, and normally they would pour it out. But, and they would pour this water, this drink offering out. And as they're pouring this water, Jesus cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. If he, he that believeth on me, as the scriptures has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What was he speaking of? He was speaking of the Spirit. 
He was speaking of that spirit that would overflow us. Overflow us. Look at verse 8 again. Look back at verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost is come upon you. See the word upon there? That's a Greek word. In the Greek, it's the word epi. It means to come upon or to overflow. Now, I had planned on giving you a little illustration. I was ill-prepared. I got so excited about preaching, I forgot to do it. But I was going to bring a basin here, because I used to do this every time I taught on this. And I always pour a cup in it. And what I would do is pour the cup, and we fill it right up to the brim. That's a person who is saved. But when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, I would begin to pour the water more. And then it just begins to overflow. It begins to overflow. Out of his belly shall flow rivers, or in the Greek, torrents of living water. It's not something that you produce. It's not something that you can even purpose to do. You can't help it. It's supernatural. It's an empowerment by the Holy Spirit himself to do things that you would never, ever do. And I'm talking about just witnessing for Christ. Being bold in the Spirit. He says, you shall receive power from on high. That word power there in the Greek is the word comes from the word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamic. Some have even suggested it's where we get the word dynamite from. I like that. It's where the dynamite comes from. If you've ever run into a spirit-filled Christian, somebody who is operating in the power of the Holy Ghost, you'll know the difference. You'll know the difference. And I'm not talking because they're speaking in tongues. or I'm not talking about that. That's a whole other sermon for another time. We'll get to that. I'm talking about just being empowered. You're going to know the difference. We've all heard sermons that are not generated by the power of the Holy Ghost. We've all heard, but we've heard the other too. And guess what? When the Holy Spirit is the one teaching, I don't care what vessel it is that's standing behind the pulpit, people get saved, people get healed, people get encouraged, people get enlightened. People come to Jesus. People glorify Jesus. People glorify, glorify Jesus. And other people begin to do the same. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will speak of me. He will speak of me. It is always about Jesus Christ. And even the Holy Spirit, even, though he, even when he empowers us, he empowers us to speak about Jesus, but to be witnesses for him. You shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, one of the aspects of this baptism of the Holy Spirit and this is something that in this particular denomination ought not to be something new to you. Because even John Wesley believed, and I want you to write these words down, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was separate and subsequent to salvation. With this, the Word of God absolutely agrees. Now, there are a few exceptions, so we don't want to put God in a box we don't want to say it absolutely has to be this way, but 95% of the time, as we're going to see as we move through the book of Acts, it is separate and subsequent to salvation. Some of the older holiness guys, they believed, they understood that there was something more. You know, they were filled with the Spirit, they were walking in the Spirit, they were doing things, but they were lacking something. There was something lacking. And so a lot of times they even called it the second work of grace. I don't have a problem with that either. 
I'm an old Nazarene boy at heart, to be honest with you. That was the first church I was ever attached to very early on in my, in my years. And I always thought it was funny because as I began to study the scriptures and, and, and I began to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, I, I upset a few people in the church. You know, they say, Don't, Doug's getting crazy, you know. He's like, reel that boy in, you know. It's like, next thing you know. And I'm going, well, this is, isn't this what it says? And then one guy says, well, here, you need to read this, Sonny. Give me this little book, which I, I've tried and tried to get a copy of. I can't find it anymore. But it was called Why I'm a Nazarene. And it was, of course, their little doctrinal book. And so as, as you know, a good parishioner taking his rebuke, I went home and I read it. And I got to the part on the second work of grace. And I read it. And I'm reading my Bible. And I'm reading it. And here's what the guy, I don't even remember who the author was, but here's what he said. He goes, this is absolutely essential because it's separate and subsequent to salvation. But here's why. He says, no, it has other names. Such as the second work of grace, baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was like, I got rebuked for what? This guy's teaching the same thing. I even took it back to the elder that gave it to me. I said, have you read this? Because this guy's saying exactly what the scriptures say. That there is something more. But so often, it doesn't get talked about. Why? Because a lot of people are afraid of it. They're afraid of it. They're afraid that something's going to happen to them. Oh, I'll guarantee you something's going to happen. You're going to become a witness. You will be a witness. You will be a witness like you've never had, like you've never realized that you could be. If this is not a part of your experience, it should be. Because he says, you shall be witnesses unto me. This isn't just for a specific few. Even in the book of Luke, you know, he says... If you, being mere men, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Ghost to them that ask Him? Ah, I love that. Ask and you shall receive. Now, there we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts and as we continue to learn, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit has chosen a few ways. Sometimes we've laid hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit and they begin to prophesy. I think that's really amazing. One time, as a, as a young minister, I was doing a little evangelistic meeting, and, and I'm, I'll warn you ahead of time, gang, every time we're going through the Bible, when we start talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to drive it home. I'm going to drive it home. Why? Because I want to see you operate in that. I want to see you empowered. So often people don't even bother asking. We're going to get to the verse. I'm not going to do it tonight. But Paul, he actually comes across certain disciples. We'll see it here in the book of Acts. He comes across certain disciples at Ephesus. Certain disciples. Calls them disciples, which means they're what? Saved. He comes across certain disciples and he says, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, as so many Christians do today, We've not even heard that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. You know, but why? See, my point was, when we read that scripture, my question is, why did Paul ask? Why did he ask? He come across certain disciples, and he asked them, have you received the Spirit since you believed? Why did he ask? Because he saw that there was something missing. There was something missing. There was a dynamic that wasn't there, that should have been. We're going to see as we go in further into the book of Acts that even in Samaria, 
that those who had received the word and received it joyfully and had become Christians, that the, the council in Jerusalem sends Peter and John to them to preach to them the baptism of the Holy Ghost, for as yet he had fallen on none of them. Why? Well, hadn't been preached. It's essential. It is separate and subsequent most of the time. Now, there's also a story we're going to come across about Cornelius. And when Paul and Peter, excuse me, begins to preach, we're told that Cornelius' house, all of a sudden, the Holy Ghost falls upon him and his daughters begin to prophesy. Now, I've, I've experienced this, gang. I've seen it. I've actually laid hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, and I've seen them receive it. And I watched this one gal one time just begin to, to prophesy. And what was she doing? She was quoting Scripture. And I thought, okay, this was pretty cool because, I, you know, I'm not, I don't know every Scripture in the Bible, but I'm pretty fluent. You know, the Lord has blessed me. You know, I remember a lot of it. And she began to, now she wasn't quoting me chapter and verse, but she was actually speaking the verses and I was perplexed because I thought, well, maybe she had been raised in church. Maybe she was just, you know, no. She had never cracked a Bible in her life. And it was one of the most amazing things I ever saw because all we did was just say, receive the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, this girl just began to just talk about the wonderful things of God. And she's still witnessing to this day. Read ahead. It gets better. There's so much I didn't get to cover. I really thought I'd get farther than what I did. But it's powerful. But read ahead. As we move into this, and I want you to really think about this. And whether you're sitting here or whether you're listening by radio, I want you to ask yourself something. Ask the question that Paul asked the disciples at Ephesus. Have you received the Spirit since you believed? Have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? Now, we know that you receive the Spirit. Even there in the Gospel, when you go back to John, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he sat there with his disciples, and he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, I think it's a pretty fair bet that if Jesus says, Receive the Holy Ghost, they received it. But then he tells them, But don't go anywhere. Stay right here in Jerusalem. For you shall be endured with power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, not many days hence. He's with you. He shall be in you. And you shall be baptized in him. It's a threefold relationship. Have you done that? Have you received it? It's a simple question, gang. I had a guy tell me one time because he had set in some of my brothers part of the hyper-Pentecostalism. And he goes, Doug, well, how do I know? How do I know? Is, is, isn't there an evidence? I said, well, sure there's an evidence, but probably not what you think it is. Because so often, there's been so many, and we're going to clarify this stuff as we get, because the Bible's so clear. Then what's the evidence, Doug? Is it speaking in tongues? No. Is it prophesying? No. What is it? He says, and you shall be witnesses when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You're going to be a witness for Christ. That word witness, and I'll finish with this. Look it up. 
The word witness there is the word martis. It is where we get the word martyr from. Now, what's he saying? Is he saying that if I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'm going to become a martyr? I think I could do without it done. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that when those who have been baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit, when they are called upon to testify of the glory of Jesus Christ, they believe it so strongly that if need be, they would lay down their very life for it. See, the problem with Christianity sometimes today, gang, is they're not empowered with the Holy Spirit. It's a powerless looking religion. I've often said it. If you can't Listen, in order to live for somebody, you need to be able to die for them, not the other way around. Listen, when a person is put to death for the sake of Christ, that doesn't make them a martyr. It only proves that they were. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, in that order. This is the way it happens. But we're to be witnesses. You want boldness? Then ask. You want to be a witness? Then ask. Now people say, well, Doug, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but I've, been, I've talked to a few people about Jesus. Great. How many of them accepted? Just asking. How many people? You know? So my question, once again, is in yourself. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? It's a legitimate question. That's what makes it. If you want the proof, it, the evidence is a witness. And what is our witness about? It's about the love of Christ. That's really what it's about. It's our love for God, man. It's not hard. It's simple. Read ahead. It gets better. And it gets much more exciting. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And Lord Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit and that he is offering to everyone, Lord Father, freely his empowerment that we might be witnesses unto you. Father, I pray for those even right now, Lord. Whether they're sitting here or whether they're listening by radio, Father, if they have not, Lord Father, I pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit that he would fall upon them, Lord Father, and cover them, immerse them, Lord and empower them that they might be the witnesses that you've called us to be to a dying and needing world, Lord. Father, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.